Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey there, Solar Warriors. If you're new here, welcome and thank you for giving us a chance to earn your attention by lending me your ears and the only non-renewable resource you've got, that is your time. Today's entrepreneur, Bill Jordan, is a founder who was steeped in the American tradition of the family business. And today we spend quite a bit of time learning how his family and his work background led to his early career in the food industry. And later, his current company, Jordan Energy, one of the most recognized solar providers in the dairy industry. Bill is also a well-respected philanthropist who has invested in the well-being of communities throughout the Americas his entire career alongside his wife. We talk about his time in Chile and his compassion for those in need. Bill teaches us how he built upon his foundational understanding of the agricultural sector to launch an energy business that serves the food industry. And I truly believe it's one of the keys to his success. We also learn how he, as an entrepreneur, took on many different roles, including an early stint at Axio Power pre-Sun Edison to help keep his dream alive and how he worked through handing over the reins to someone else while he went on to pursue learning how business and project development works in this industry. Many of you, I'm sure, will identify with Bill's journey and learn from his stories. He provides clear insight into the challenges that he sees to the speed and scale of growth our industry needs. So let's get started. Since you are here, I Hope that you're subscribed to the podcast as that will ensure that you won't miss out on our twice weekly content just like this. Of course, you can always check out more than 550 additional clean energy founders, stories, and startup advice at mysuncast.com. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. One of the real joys of being able to interview so many leaders in the industry is I get recommendations from folks that I get to follow threads where I can really dive deep with someone who has an expertise in a particular vertical that I think is not only interesting, but necessary to understand. And someone who has endured uh, long enough time that there are lessons to be learned. And Bill Jordan is exactly that kind of entrepreneur. It's someone who has cultivated deep respect and integrity in the industry in not just his niche, but more broadly, he, as you'll see today, he has been involved in a number of different and well-respected enterprises and draws experience and draws insight from those experiences that come into play with his company, Jordan Energy, as I discussed in the introduction a few moments ago. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome Bill to the show. We're going to dive into Jordan Energy Food Enterprises and all of the ways that he is bringing light to the world. Bill, good to see you. 
It's great to be here, Nico. I can't tell you. I mean, we met in the early days for me. I started the first install in 2009, and I want to say almost back that early, 2010, 2011. So it's been exciting to see all the growth that's happened. And yeah, Jordan Energy and Food Enterprises has been a great for-profit focus uh, for us, and it's ramping up, uh, you know, as are so many other solar companies at this stage uh, with the new investment in Inflation Reduction Act coming into play for the next 10 years. Uh, we've tried to give back generously through the Let's Share the Sun Foundation, which I know you have some interest in and we'll get into a little bit. But kudos to you for creating a forum for people to learn from because I enjoy listening to your podcast regularly on many of the long drives that I do to visit customers, you know, around the country now, but, you know, started in the Northeast here in New York. Thank you very much, my friend. I'm looking forward to the conversation that we're going to have today. And you know, you are in uh, company of some of the greats in my mind uh, that I've had on the show, not, not the least of which is our mutual friend, Jeff Weiss, a fellow Cornell grad, solar developer up in, up in the Northeast of the United States here. You know, one of the ways that I usually get into the conversation, and I think it makes sense because of the deep background that you share with your family uh, and the business that you have is around how you grew up and where, where you grew up and how that influenced your concept of entrepreneur business, life decisions and goals, et cetera. So I'd like to ask, one of the things that stands out for me as I was looking at the work, like a lot of folks will leave a company and come back to it and MerTech Industries seems to be that for you. I want to try and draw a common thread or theme. There's often little nuggets that are to be found when someone leaves an organization, goes and does something and comes back to it. Is there a there there? Or? I think there is in the sense that... Uh... You know, Mertech Industry was a company that my father-in-law set up uh, when he retired from being the president of GAF Roofing for a decade. By many measures, he and Sam Heyman turned the company around because it was losing $30 million a year, uh, which was big money back then in the late 70s. And then he re retired from that position in 1988. If there's a there there, it would be, you know, growing up in San Diego, I really admired my uncle Joe and my uncle Tony, who were farmers in the Imperial Valley. My mom was one of six Italians in a produce shop in South Philly. Grandfather was an immigrant through Ellis Island. And when her three brothers all went to the Second World War and came back, he either really had to grow the produce shop or what ended up happening is five out of the six siblings ended up in Southern California. I grew up and my uncles had cantaloupes in the summer and iceberg lettuce in, in the winter. I really admired the kind of family business component of, uh, you know, working with your brother. And as it turns out, you know, fast forward to today, Majesty Five Crowns, my cousin's business as the next generation you know, did 2.2 megawatts of solar in 2010 in the Imperial Valley. We're doing two megawatts AC of power on their new facility up in Northern California, combination canopy roof mount. They're in the process of the next generation. The COO is actually the next generation with several of my cousin's children taking that on. So I think that there, there was, you know, my wife and I graduated 85 Notre Dame and we went to Chile to work with poor, small family farmers. We're dating at the end of those two years. Wanted to go back to Chile, 
but kind of fell in love with the whole family. And my father-in-law was one of my closest friends. He's, you know, deceased now five or six years. That was a hard decision because as much as I loved what he was doing in the roofing industry and employing Latinos in Southwest Yonkers, you know, my vocation was around hunger issues, food and agriculture. And so we opted to go back for another four years to work with farmers in Chile. Hard to do that. At the end of the day, coming back, you know, he was at a later juncture where he was inclined to eventually sell in Mertec Industries. But I treasure the years that we had together in both junctures. And I think the common thread to your question is kind of the, the, the family business dynamic is like, we're small. I have ambivalence about keeping my name in the title of the company, but a, a person whose opinion I respect, you know, saw the solar industry at the very early stages and said, well, keep your name on it because then there's ownership. And if you want to build a reputation of integrity, you're going to buckle down in the mud and, and, and forge through things. And so name might change at some point down in the future, but my uncles were Colas brothers my cousin's generation kind of put together majesty and five crowns with some same values as the family business and next generations moving on from there. We'll see if our, any of our three want to be involved full-time in this. In the meantime, we have great combination of seasoned veterans in the industry and new young people that are really helping us keep up to pace with the ramp up that's happening. Well, Naval Ravikant, and uh, if you haven't read his book, The Almanac of Naval, which is basically just a comp compilation of all of his uh, philosophical tweets, he often says, put your name on it. What he means is you find a way to have as much at stake as possible. <laughs> and having your name on it is a way to sort of gut check. Do I have the level of integrity that I would want if my name were on it and I can't hide from it, you know? Well, and there's truth there. And I think one of the biggest challenges in the, I'll call it the first decade of building the, the company has been, you know, the initial staunch opposition of most utilities to solar and the transition that they're in. But along the way, you know, I think there's a lot of experiences of trying to undercut integrity because of the market dynamic of transformation that's happening that, you know, small agile companies like ours are, you know, going to gain market share in the transition from the kind of regulated monopoly incumbents mm -hmm. in the energy sector. So now they're at more of a, if you can't beat them, join them kind of modality. So there's less resistance, but they're still, I mean, trying to chip away at your integrity wherever they can. <laughs> it's been my experience. I don't know how you feel about that. You know, it's been a long time since I've been out actively developing and interacting with utilities the way that the way that you and your business do. I don't particularly have an opinion on it specifically because I don't have personal experience other than just anecdotal evidence from others. I'd love to hear a bit more, though, in terms of undercutting of integrity. So the way I've sort of heard you say it is that there's a staunch opposition from utilities and there's a general undercutting of integrity with the fast paced growth of the sector. And I want to make sure I understood it correctly. Yeah, I think the transformation that's happening in the energy sector is undeniable. We're in a time of tremendous innovation. And so if you've had a hundred years of regulated monopolies, you know, running the grid and kind of the generation side is changing so dramatically with higher percentages of renewables that aren't necessarily from that same old network that has worked for the hundred years, 
the first phase was clearly opposition. This isn't going to happen. It's too expensive. All of the, you know, excuses. You, you guys don't know how to run generation, electricity responsibly. And then, you know, they get the RPI standards coming in and state incentives to help us get started 10 years ago. Well, in most quarters, there's first phase was opposition, <laughs> at least in the Northeast where we started our business. You had more aggressive mandates in California that helped keep it, you know, number one in the country, you know, with the volume that's been implemented there. But it hasn't been a smooth transition. I always make the comparison to IBM before Bill Gates and Steve Jobs created the personal computers we're communicating through right now. Those mainframes were a lot less powerful than these laptops we're talking through. And IBM probably thought that they were going to be the dominant force in computing, you know, maybe for a long timeline. But innovation happened with the personal computer. So IBM still exists. They just had to change a lot. And similarly, I think the utilities are going through a lot of change that is hard for some people that have done some things the same way for decades. So if the opposition from the utility was the, let's call it the biggest challenge of the last decade or the first decade that you built the business. What do you foresee as the biggest challenge for the next five to 10 years? Well, I have taken the quoting John Doerr quite often with his book, Speed and Scale. There is a sense of urgency. So the ramp up clearly is upon us. So I think ramping up responsibly 80% of our business to date is with farmers and food companies because they trust us and they know us. We know how to speak farmer. We have a genuine care for their family farm businesses. And so for the longest time, I had a strategy of stay as small as possible for as long as possible to avoid the big mistakes that we saw a lot of companies making in the early days of this industry. And that was wise. But now you have the 10-year time horizon of the Inflation Reduction Act, right? And so the ramp up is upon us for our company personally, but our industry. And I think we want to try to make less mistakes than inevitably happen at the start of a new industry like the solar. I remember once at a SPI, David Crane, you know, after Sun Edison's bankruptcy, he kind of said, this is inevitable. This happens when new industries start, you know, and a lot of us felt a lot of ambivalence about some of the excesses or big mistakes that were not so responsible that were made. So I think the biggest challenge is gaining market share in responsible ways that, you know, help to lower the cost of energy for people and, I would say, make the world a better and safer place that's more inhabitable on a number of perspectives, economically more cost effective for people to power uh, things. And then environmentally, obviously, is one of the drivers. Bill, could you talk about the time period or process through which you were working in the food industry and begun to have a realization that there was another industry in which you could play a role, namely power and how you made that transition? Well, I would just say that uh, I often get the question, Jordan Energy and food, how are those two related? And for me, it's been pretty intimate throughout life. And so those early stories about my uncles being farmers in the Imperial Valley are one component of it. I went off to college at Notre Dame, focused on studies of hunger. That led to me working with small family farmers in Chile for six years. Cornell was my bridge from that international experience to get a job in the 
ag sector in the Northeast, where my wife was the native New Yorker, is the native New Yorker, and we have raised our three kids here in New York. I ended up getting a job as a special assistant to the Commissioner of Agriculture in the Pataki administration in New York. And that was a fantastic job. So to your question, part of that job was giving out grants to do anaerobic digestion on dairy farms in 2003, 2004, 2005. And in those years, anaerobic digestion was not standardized at all as it's become now in the United States. And and so you had a, a father-son team, one example in Cayuga County, you know, where the father would say to the son, whose turn is it to, t- to tame the beast? And taming the beast was getting in the manure on with boots that go above the knees because the thing wasn't working right. Uh, now you have a standardized, well-financed anaerobic digestion industry, but it's around that time, there maybe 200 anaerobic digesters in the whole country. And I said, geez, I read a key book called The Oil Factor that was actually recommended by a president of GAF Roofing at the time, Bill Collins, who's a close friend, was two presidents after my father-in-law. The Oil Factor in, in 2004 posited that oil would be over $100 a barrel uh, when it was $20 a barrel. So here you had a roofing company that was saying, we buy a lot of asphalt around the world. What does this mean for our business? And I was saying, wow, it's ironic. Here, the price of that asphalt is going to skyrocket. And we're putting solar panels (laughs) on top of, you know, asphalt roofs. Mm -hmm. And eventually there's going to be roofs that are just the solar themselves. And then the other key book in my trajectory, Nico, of thinking was uh, Travis Bradford's Solar Revolution in 2006. Wow, that's going way back there. And and Travis, basically, I thought he nailed it. He said, you know, solar is going to be the lowest cost power in most locations, fundamentally transforming the energy sector. Mm-hmm. And I said that this is really well thought out. I think this is actually going to happen quicker than most people think. So sustainable agriculture has always been linked to renewable energy for me. But in those those time periods, I came to conclude that solar was going to have the most market share and that farmers stood to benefit by diversifying their farm operations to include solar. So that's the crux of the nexus between food and, and energy for me. I haven't had anybody bring in Travis as a reference in a while. That is, uh, that's fantastic. I was also a, a, a follower of Travis in my early days, 2006, 2007, as I was getting into the industry. I haven't seen him in a while. I think he's teaching at Columbia, you know, and a lot of good stuff going on there. Yeah. But I think of a very good educator. And, you know, I, th- I, I, I think he had good insights in that book that certainly affected my trajectory. Brilliant guy, too. I mean, um, former fund manager and corporate buyout specialist. He's got a lot of a lot of interesting things to say and definitely saw the solar solar revolution as he named his book. And we often refer to the clean energy revolution now, but solar is the, is the crux is the cornerstone of the clean energy revolution in many, in many ways, because it will be, it will be the largest form of power generation on the planet uh, predicted by 20, I think by 2025, but certainly by 2030. Yeah. He was editing uh, PV news, mm-hmm. a newsletter. He allowed me towards, it ended up being the end of his time because then he got onto some other things, but uh, we did an article on solar in the poorest parts of the world, which is where, you know, let's share the sun. It was valuable to me to meet some of the leaders, early leaders in, in those efforts that we continue to kind of engage with on the let's share the sun efforts. 
Can you talk a bit about the decision to take leave of an industry where you had sort of really planted roots, you really understood and understand how the, how the food sector works and be a service provider to that industry to offer them clean alternatives for electricity? Like, you know, obviously you were working with the commissioner of agriculture and looking at different forms of alternative energy. When did it become clear to you that solar was going to be the thing that you were going to build a business around? And how did you make that decision? I've probably always had a little bit of entrepreneurial kind of spirit. I think it takes a lot of that spirit to opt to go to Chile and mm-hmm. make next to no money. In this case, with you know founders of Notre Dame, so the Catholic Church, yeah. similar to the Peace Corps on the state side. I think once you read that book from Travis and you are convinced that solar is going to be market share leader, I, I remember early presentations where I had a slide that was quoting John Doerr at an earlier stage than speed and scale, where he said, you know, the internet economy, $150 billion, the energy sector, $6 trillion. This is the mother of all markets. And it was a quote from the Wall Street Journal. And so that's a much larger opportunity than the IT revolution combined, I would say. And so I became convinced that in the time that I had left on this planet, that was going to be the biggest economic transformation and environmental need uh, to transform the energy sector. So that's kind of very uh, exciting stuff, uh, stimulating. And so then you ask the question, well, what's the role for farmers? You know, farmers have been producing food for humanity forever, right? A lot of them had been going out of business. Uh, it's it's hard to be a dairy farmer in most parts of the United States. And part of the reason it's hard is because most of your income is tied to one product, right? <laughs> milk, the price of milk. So if energy becomes an intelligence diversification, you know, and strengthens the family farm, that's a good thing. I want to see as many healthy family farmers out there as uh, as as we need to to feed the world. And th- the reality is over the next 10, 20 years, most of them are going to have solar as a part of the picture and store, so solar plus storage for that matter. And they're going to be stronger family businesses and the price of power net net will have reduced for society. So that's exciting to me. And I said, you know, I want to I want to do this for as many years as I can going forward. And if my kids eventually take interest, maybe that's a family business like my uncle's had. And that's exciting. But if it goes a different route of employee owned or some other route, uh, I just maybe would like to be a contributor towards this process happening. Did you have an idea of exactly how you would structure the business? Like talk, talk a bit about the the process of formulating the thesis of the business early and then how it evolved over time. I'm really curious to hear from someone who had grown up in the family business, you knew exactly how you could solve these problems for farmers. So how did you formulate the thesis of the business and then start finding your early customers? Those that know me know I'm a pretty avid fan of Notre Dame as a guy that's studied there. And when I drew up my business plan, we moved to Albany, New York for the job with Ag and Markets. And one of the leading Notre Dame families in our area is the O'Brien family. So Connie O'Brien was my classmate. Five out of five, you know, siblings went. Her dad was a 1957 grad. He was probably the most successful insurance guy in the capital district. So I think it's wise to show your business plan to people who have been successful. And I, I shared the business plan, you know, with, with Frank. 
And I, I have quoted him uh, time and time again. And, uh, you know, he said in a nutshell, I like your business plan. My advice is the following. First, don't be greedy. Don't go for oversized margins because you'll price yourself out of the business. He says, don't be greedy is my first advice. And then uh, work with associations that help you aggregate. So you're not just doing one dairy farm or two dairy farms, but you work with an association. And, you know, we're fortunate to be uh, partnered with the largest milk marketing co-op in the country that has, you know, thousands of members and almost 100 milk processing plants. And he says, and be generous in your not greedy mode by sharing the benefits of solar to that organization and their members. So that's really the the crux of what we're doing well in the ag sector. I think the same principle applies to other verticals within the distributed generation segments that we're working in. But one of the things that I do best is I sit at coffee tables in the winter months with farmers that have time to talk with me. And I, I usually know at the coffee table within the first five minutes of pretty long conversations, you know, if the trust factor is getting getting built up and going there. You know, conversely, over 50% of that $6 trillion that John Doerr talked about is in the transportation segment. So the big kahuna in our market as we go through the electrification of the transportation segment is that that segment. And I had the good fortune of teaching a course at Notre Dame MBA one year uh, that was called Financing Solar on Car Dealerships. And it was with uh, the largest REIT real estate investment trust that owns properties of car dealers, right? And it was a very successful course. Unfortunately, we tied the solar to LED lighting, which was so much lower hanging fruit. The average car dealer back then, 60% of their usage was the metal halide lights in their parking lots. And so much cheaper just to do the LED lights. Now it's going to happen with car dealerships and the automobile industry because you're going to have the electric vehicles that need that generation. But I couldn't get five minutes of most car dealers' time compared to the hour that a farmer would be happy to talk about their life and their business and then get around to solar, you know, having worked with farmers my whole life. So, you know, that's an easy enough uh, solution. If you want to get into that vertical, you just got to get people that have that same trust and credibility within that vertical. And so that's one of the interesting, I think, subsets of opportunity as we ramp our industry up here with the electrification of the automobile industry. As you've grown the business over the last 10, 15 years, it's been over a decade now. Have there been periods where you either by the opportunity presenting itself or by you just needing to figure out sort of revenue that you've looked at alternatives to Jordan Energy? And if so, how did you, how did you handle that as an entrepreneur? Can you talk a bit about the constant journey in the early days of starting a business of trying to, of, of recommitting yourself to the business versus how you handle like, you know, raising a family and paying for paying the bills and stuff like that? Yeah, I think uh, it's been a stressful journey. Uh, I think my wife's been the most stressed out because she has uh, not as much of a risk taker as I am. And we have three beautiful young adult children out there. And and so they uh, had to bear with me. Um, you know, at one point, our youngest said, uh, Dad, can we talk about something other than solar? <laughs> like, you're totally obsessed with solar. <laughs> And she's a freshman at Notre Dame now, and she's been on our delegations to Haiti and to Puerto Rico with Let's Share the Sun yeah. and loves solar as well. But to your point and to your question, 
we're a relationship uh, kind of driven uh, family and, and group and company now. And, you know, in the earliest of days when Tim Derrick uh, offered a position first under retainer and then full time with Axial Power, mm-hmm. uh, I just had really grown to admire his leadership in the industry. And I said to myself, you know what, I can transfer Jordan Energy to someone else. Don't shut it down, but lie dormant for mm-hmm. a year or two, gain some valuable experience at the utility scale, at the DG scale, because most of our first installs, our first was a 50 kilowatt on an Apple processing facility mm-hmm. in the Hudson Valley. Yeah. So a lot of the early deals were small farmers in New York, kind of before New York's market was really taking off. And that's okay. I mean, we got into the neighboring SREC markets and we did find in those early years but that helped buffer and it helped me gain further relationships in the industry that I've retained to this day. So I don't see most solar people as competitors, but as potential collaborators, because there's so much market share for all of us to gain. It's just what segments and what's your model and what customers are you seeking to gain and build long, those long-term relationships with. You know, as I look at your at your LinkedIn, it's clear that the Axio Power thing happened and along with the eventual Senate as an acquisition for quite a few years, two to three years while Jordan Energy was in existence. So that definitely clears that up for me. I'm curious about two things. I'll get back to the second one. The first is the just digging a little bit deeper on what you learned at Axio that helped Jordan Energy. And the second that I want to get to, if I remember it, is the process of handing your business off to someone else while you go off and, and get take a job, a W-2 job. So let's look at the first. Uh, you mentioned that Axio gave you experience, much needed experience, I'd presume, in how to think about project development. And I'm guessing it allowed you to experiment on someone else's dime and get more velocity and more ability to pattern match than you otherwise would have gotten through Jordan Energy doing it on your own. Yeah. And the first phase of Jordan Energy, the lowest cost way of getting into the industry, as I saw it, was to be a referral agent. Mm-hmm. So like a real estate broker is like referral agent gets a little fee for jobs mm-hmm. they line up and hand off to somebody. We got real good at writing grants. Mary Beth, you know, Manny has been with us from the outset. She's probably the best grant writer in the country for rural America. <laughs> and so, you know, she and the other person were able to keep the the ball afloat. And I did you know, gain the experience at Axial Power to say, hey, you know, this, you know, this development stuff is, is not as intimidating as it sounds. I could be a developer. Jordan Energy and Food Energy could be a leading developer in the vertical that we're, you know, most interested in, you know, in the, in the food sector. And so I looked at it that way. It was, uh, it was okay to take the detour. I, you know, never really intended to try to stay at uh, Sun Edison because it was just a a different beast. I tried to learn as much as I could and build relationships. But I said, you know, now it's time to come back to building Jordan Energy. I want to pull a thread on the grants. I'm assuming that your work with the, within the organ, within the government, as you mentioned before, the work that led you to understand how anaerobic digesters were and were not working, gave you insight into government programs that farmers neither knew about nor knew how to apply for. Is that accurate? Yes, that's, that's accurate. And so then Bill, uh, Bill Jordan looks at that and says, okay, let me build a business where my hook is, I know the farmers, I can get you introduced to them. And by the way, here's some incentives. So you developer, I'll match you with the farmer. You give me a piece of the business. I'll also maybe take a piece of the business that is necessary by helping write this grant. 
That's correct. And the first tagline was uh, advice on solar you can trust when we were referral agent days. Yeah. But, you know, Hunt Farm in Orange, Massachusetts is on its eighth solar project. And George Hunt would say, I've had 20 solar companies come to my farm gate. You guys are the first guys that seem to care about my business, have some understanding of it and interest. And so I trust you for my next solar project, you know? So we're on project eight with them now. Really glad you brought in the the quote from George. Uh, he's a dairy farmer, one of your earliest clients, as I remember. And you said also that he's making more money with solar than with his previous activities. Can you talk a bit about that? Like the reality of how George and his dairy farm have begun to not just rationalize, but but really incorporate power generation as a as a revenue generator. So yeah, beautiful farm in Orange, Massachusetts. Uh, you know, uh, two hundred cow dairy. That is, uh, you know, small, small to medium in in today's dairy reality. Great at real estate, so has various real estate deals that they've made. I think astute in seeing SREC 1, SREC 2 in Massachusetts was, you know, a whole new ball game. And, you know, where, you know, a lot of solar companies were just trying to get land at the lowest possible cost from farmers. George said, hey, <laughs> there's something here for me in diversifying my business that it's not just about leasing my land, though he has some great land leases on his property. And then who do you trust in this new sector? Well, we're fortunate to have that trusting relationship. I, I, I think one of the first uh, meetings, uh, his youngest daughter, Heather, was getting a check to go off as a Cornell student for the summer to look at anaerobic digesters and solar and wind in Germany. And she was sitting with her grandparents and her dad and her mom and her mom. Uh, you know, fast forward 10 years, Heather just turned 30 and the Hunt family invited me to her wedding because, you know, we feel like we're part of each other's family. And that's kind of trust levels that we uh, really uh, value in the ag sector. Bill, I love listening to the stories that you share because they are the quintessential essence of what it is like to not just build a, a business based on integrity and a business that, that leverages super regional and sort of national experience for local benefit, but it looks at how do you actually build a relationship that's long-term where it's not extractive to your mentor's point from, um, from so long ago, reviewing your business plan. How are you generous with your time and effort? And it's clear that building a business, not only around integrity, but building that trust relationship where they believe that you are not in it just for this one opportunity, but rather to help their business grow. I had a mentor who always said, figure out how your customer makes money and help them make more of it. And they'll be your customer for a long time. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, uh, that's working well. And I mean, we all know of the, you know, recent spike in conventional power prices and that's accelerating, you know, that combined with the Inflation Reduction Act has put the whole of rural America into play. We've had an intelligent sequencing strategy uh, up until this point, but now you have just uh, it makes sense everywhere. So a lot of room for growth, but we want to do growth where we don't we don't lose that long term relationship uh, perspective with our customers and 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 those relationships. Yeah, you mentioned that a little earlier as well. This idea of sustainable scalability. What are you and your peers thinking about and talking about with regards to that sustainable scalability? How are you considering 
integrating it in your business now as you look at projects across the country working in California. It's not just regional Northeast and Connecticut projects or Massachusetts projects. Now you are offering services more further afield as you look at offering maybe different, different services and growing your team, which itself is difficult. How, as a business owner, are you thinking about building that business? Talk to me some about some of those principles. Yeah, it's answering the who question correctly. So uh, we want people on our team that want to stick with us and grow their families and lives. Like I mentioned, David Granlin's doing such a great job. His, his firstborn son just a couple of weeks ago, that's uh, long-term vested into the company and, and working in teamwork mode. David does things that I'll never be able to do. But guess what? David and Jake, our COO, Mary Beth, uh, as we grow, they're allowing me to do that, which I do best. So if the whole country's in play and I need to be in front of a farmer and they say, wow, you're the owner of the company, uh, I don't get the owner of the company with these other solar companies that come to my doorstep. Uh, that's the teamwork that we are doing really well. So we have very aggressive uh, growth uh, goals over the next five years to double revenue, double profitability year over year over those five years. We think we can do that and retain that culture. But the key to it is getting the right players in the right positions on the team that like working with each other and, and, and are harmonious in the way we work. So we encourage all of our employees to take all of their vacation time because life is bigger than just uh, working, you know, six days a week, 16 hour days, which some people are doing that in, in our industry these days. And that's, that's not really long-term sustainable. It gains some short-term market advantage and good Resorts on a quarter to quarter basis, maybe, but you know, I think if if I can, if we as a team can hire such that I can do the things that I'm best at, I believe that we'll be able to retain that uh, unique kind of trust factor with our customers that will have them in turn saying, "Hey, you know, work with these guys. These are the right people to work with." And so we talk about it all the time. How do you scale and not lose that, you know, very genuine personal touch with your customer? Because another quote from a dear friend who's the current commissioner of agriculture in New York State, Richard Ball, you know, we did solar on his farm, the Carrot Barn in 2010, long before he became commissioner. And we were at an Italian restaurant once and we were comparing what we were doing in those early years to another company. And he said, Bill, you don't understand. You guys are in two totally different businesses. That company is in the business of selling solar panels. You guys are in the relationship business, and that's a totally different business. So, yes, we are selling solar panels, but we're interested in the long-term relationship with the people that we're partnering with on the customer side, on the EPC side, on the all of the sides that are required to be a good developer. You know, you mentioned the importance of finding a good team and having those employees. And you mentioned who, not how, to harken back to Dan Sullivan, a book that I often recommend and refer to. And uh, I'm curious if you have any specific frameworks that you found that work for you on finding those employees. I find right now that one of the greatest challenges in this blitz scale that we're going to see in our industry right now is actually onboarding talent, how to sift through the wheat and, or, or the shaft to find the wheat, how to identify it, how to onboard folks and how to keep them. That's a great question. And uh, that Who book was recommended by one of our angel investors who's a fellow member of EO, Entrepreneurs Organization, which has been a great support towards trying to make better decisions as you grow for us. 
you know, I've mentioned David, I've mentioned our COO, Jake Urich, fantastic. We had to do 17 interviews to get to, you know, to David. <laughs> and that was, you know, through a, a one of the top executive search people in the, our industry. And it was at a time when there were a lot more resumes out on the street than there was for most of 2022. I would say that that's starting to change with the Inflation Reduction Act, but we're spending more of our time doing those interviews. And so I think there's a combination. I, I honestly, uh, Jake Urich and I just taught a course at Notre Dame on, you know, sustainability in the College of Business. Uh, it's just a guest lecture thing for uh, food and energy. And basically, I tell young people in those seats, you're at the same age as Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. And it's people in your age category that are really going to lead this industry. And we're wise to try to find the best of you. And so there are coachable young people that you take in new to the industry and building structures that allow for that. And then uh, I think you need some experienced people in the industry. And I do honestly believe that there's a higher quotient of altruism in our industry than maybe other sectors or other ages of the energy story. And so I think that uh, most people would like to have a stable job for a long time with people they like being around. It's just that in the dynamics of fast moving, there's been a lot of churn. And so it's taking people time to get to those right configurations. And it's also, uh, I think, what we're trying to do anyway is you know, build it in such a way that people will want to stay for the next 20 years is going to be an exciting ride. And so that's not going to be for everybody in a, in a society that has average tenure and jobs that's shorter and shorter. I think there's some uh, real demand for that kind of a uh, thing for a subset of us and that, you know, we're not going to be a huge team, but I think we're going to be a team that has fun working with each other and giving back at the same time, which I, you know, do want to get to what Let's Share the Sun is doing, because that's really what recharges my batteries when I get tired of fighting with utilities <laughs> on interconnection applications. <laughs> Pardon the interruption, but I'm guessing you're listening to Suncast because you're trying to stay ahead of the trends and build your career and your company in a way that aligns with what the data is saying is going to happen in the marketplace. If you're looking at the distributed generation market specifically, may I recommend that you go listen to the episode we published with Gustavo Montero, EDPR, and Michelle Davis from Woodmac, all about the trends to watch for 2023. It was just recently published on Tuesday, January 31st. Go check it out. Hey family, one quick reminder here that if you haven't yet joined Resource Labs, you are missing out. It is our outstanding community. It's the evolution of Suncast moving from presentations, you listening to us talk, to conversations. Our community involved in conversations as varied as powering Australia to green hydrogen to crypto and so many other things. Our newsroom is full of great insights. The main chat and even our RE Plus Where to Party At channel have been popping off. We've got more than 100 folks enjoying the community, and I would invite you in. You can do that at mysuncast.com forward slash community. Come see how Resource Labs can help you grow your influence, impact, and income. See you inside. Hey, I know you are a savvy listener. Heck, you're listening to Suncast and You've probably, as a result, heard of a little company called SunGrow. If you're not using SunGrow inverters on your projects, I would love to better understand why. They are the inverter of choice for many of the EPCs that I know. 
SunGrow's the number one in gigawatts deployed. They've got the top bankability in the industry. Hexsolve uses them for the majority of their projects. And you may not even know, but SunGrow has the largest R&D team in the power electronics industry. These three key points alone have convinced most of the major U.S. developers to prefer SunGrow. They now experience a diversified supply chain, local service team, patented containerized product, all with their seamless, pain-free commissioning. Look, imitation is the highest form of flattery. So why spend all of your cycles on what inverter to use when the largest EPC in the land has already done the heavy lifting for you? You can have their same experience for your projects. See how at mysuncast.com forward slash sungrow. You've mentioned Jake Yurick a couple of times. He's your chief operating officer. And before Jordan Energy, he was at McKinsey. You know, I love hearing stories like this. And I don't know about Jake's story. That's what I want to learn from you. I see that he's a Notre Dame grad. So there's an obvious connection there. But how'd you meet Jake? And why do you believe that he thinks this is the right next opportunity after McKinsey, right? Like someone like Jake could go anywhere and it, it, it speaks volumes for your leadership and the opportunity at Jordan that someone with sort of his grooming has moved over. Thank God we, we're getting them, right? We're getting people from, uh, from not just consulting, but from high, uh, high value decision, strong, like strong foundational decision-making capabilities. Talk to me a bit about bringing Jake on board. Well, it's one of my favorite topics because we just have a great teamwork and relationship. But as I mentioned, Axio Power had a great internship program. You know, Jake was an undergrad at Notre Dame and we got invited to teach a course, you know, solar and the rebuild of Haiti, more from the Let's Share the Sun side. And we did a presentation to a group of engineers and there's the hardest scholarship at that time to get. It was called the Hesburgh USCO Scholars, 25 a year, pick off people that would otherwise go to the Ivies. And Jake was one of those guys. He walked up to me after our presentation. He says, I want to intern with you guys. And, and so we had him as an intern, you know, just outlier all-star right from the get-go. You know, we had five grants for uh, solar in, in Massachusetts and here's this sophomore college, you know, did the five grants with virtually no oversight. And I said, you got to be kidding me. This is not, this is, this is not the average intern. And so I knew when he went to McKinsey that we would, you know, want to stay in touch, but that, you know, he could go anywhere he wanted to. But I think that in that same, uh, I think combination of sharp brain with a good heart, I think the combination of Jordan Energy and Let's Share the Sun uh, captured Jake's imagination. And then on the intellectual side, he clearly understood the magnitude of the opportunity that solar represents, you know, in his lifetime. And I think that that is something that we want to continue to be great at is to get young people excited about what's happening here. And then, you know, the decision after three and a half years in in McKinsey, two in Chicago, one in Australia, six months in African nations doing great work as he did, was you can either go to a really large company and be kind of in the middle of the structure and try to navigate, or you can be on the ground floor of the biggest economic transformation that our planet's ever seen in an industry that also the company wants to give back at the same time so that 
another cool thing about solar is it's happening concurrently in the poorest parts of the world uh, where let's share the sun can be a bit of a catalyst as it's happening in the developing world. So, you know, that, you know, I think combination uh, combined with, I think, good chemistry. We're both uh, big sports fans. So I'd like to say Jake is great at the play-by-play and I just fill in color commentary and, and we have a great kind of rapport with uh, the relationships that, you know, we have going as a company now. So uh, very grateful for Jake uh, on our team. And he's, he's a, a valuable component as are all members, really. We've touched a lot on uh, the inevitable piece of the conversation that I definitely want to dive into here. Early on, you mentioned one of your mentors saying, you know, be generous. Generosity seems to be the key to not just building deep trust and, um, and building long-term relationships in my, in my view, but it also is something that not everyone finds easy or many believe is something you postpone until you have sort of a, a reserve from which to be generous. You and your wife started Let's Share the Sun as a, as a philanthropic arm of Jordan Energy as a way to give back. And my understanding is that you donate 10% of the profits of the business. How early in the cycle of Jordan Energy did you decide that this would be the vehicle that you'd use to give back. And I'm just curious generally, like how profitable the business might've been, right? Because a lot of folks to my point would say, oh, I'm going to do that when I've got money. And I'm betting that you started earlier than that. Yeah, I would say uh, Nancy insisted on giving back from the outset, which, you know, I'm grateful for now, but it hasn't always been easy. I think it's been well above 10% if you count very low profits and lost years. Uh, but I went on a trip in 2009, the, first, the, the same year as our first install to Haiti before the earthquake. And you see the needs in Haiti, which is so much more extreme than even we've been a lot of our lives in poor parts of the world working in uh, rural Chile, primarily those six years. Then the earthquake happens and you've said you're going to name it, let's share the sun. And you know intellectually how much solar is going to be part of the solution for a devastated country like Haiti. And it has popped up all over the place on the island. And so I think uh, the trips to Haiti were very, very impactful. uh, What four panels on the first trip can do. And then next trip, you go 16 panels on the same roof. And then you have all these invitations, but you also see other, other, other instances of solar coming in through various avenues. And now, honestly, we're working with Haitian solar companies that didn't exist seven years ago, but now have 40, 50 employees. So not just trying to drop in charity donations, but uh, provide a catalytic presence bringing resources to bear so that you could have local economic development with companies that you could support in training on the O&M and all that stuff. So I would also say that the trips really renew your spirit because if your spirits get down because of any headache that you're experiencing, uh, please come on a trip to Let's Share, this, with Let's Share the Sun, which last year was phenomenal start of a partnership with Wood McKenzie. And the person that invited us to teach at Notre Dame, Dr. Carolyn Wu, you know, she's a leader in, you know, a lot of business circles. She was the dean of the College of Business, and then she ran uh, Catholic Relief Services uh, and is doing incredible stuff related to energy. She says, Bill, you don't know what a big deal it is that you've partnered with Wood McKenzie because everybody in the energy sector knows Wood McKenzie. Now, 
we go to Puerto Rico with Wood McKenzie and their tagline on the T-shirts with our logo and their logo is transforming the way we power the planet. And they want to go bigger and better, you know, this year in Puerto Rico and a lot of other com- countries where there are needs at least as uh, great, high as, as Puerto Rico, but it's happening in those places. So if we can partner with people in the industry, you go on these trips and then you're friends for life and then you want to work with each other on both sides of the for-profit and not, not-for-profit equation. So clearly Jordan Energy is a partner of Let's Share the Sun, which itself is a separate foundation. Members of your team help manage it, I presume. But could you talk a bit about, as a foundation, as a nonprofit, how you structure both the trips, which is a novel and uh, an interesting way to engage folks in the opportunity to see how the solar really has a direct impact, not on, you know, middle-income family here in the United States, but on the poorest of the poor in Honduras and Haiti, two of the poorest countries in the world, the two poorest countries in the Western Hemisphere, and Puerto Rico ravaged by storm after storm. Can you talk a bit about the structure of how folks, how companies partner with Let's Share the Sun to create these trips and and what, you know, how that is going to grow as well over the coming few years? So there's a, a part of it that's very relational. We have a very strong board of directors and that board of directors makes all of the decisions on which engagements we add to, you know, the portfolio, if you will, and uh, meets regularly. Uh, I was on a development committee meeting just last night as just one of the board members at this stage, which is great. I can use Wood McKenzie as a great example. I'm a strong networker and I reached out to Luke Lewandowski, who's one of the directors. He took an interest. He says, hey, we've been looking for something like this. And can we go to Puerto Rico? We had already started planning the Puerto Rico trip where we did 10 homes for people in the rural areas in the mountains that have medical needs. And if the power goes out to six times a month on average, which has been the experience in addition to the year-long outage after Maria, that's life-threatening. So Luke starts to gain internal support at Wood McKenzie and brings a couple of the other people along uh, the trip last year. And they decide to give a financial sponsorship. So that's always in dialogue with the board so that the board says, okay, we're, you know, in support of building this partnership. Other people that went on, I got a shout out to John Moran at Solar Landscape. I mean, John's a great great friend now. And John, you know, we we just got a financial commitment and and the the CEO of Solar Landscape is going to go and march with us. Sean, we had him on the show. They're going to have their team's kind of going to different places in addition to Puerto Rico over the years. Luke Lewandowski is now on the board. Mm. And so Luke says, one of our, pre- our president of Wood McKenzie wants to go this year so that our whole company culture takes this on because it is important for us to give back as well. So BQ Energy uh, was one of my uh, old Axio Power buddies is Paul Curran, who's doing solar leading on landfills and brownfields around the country, uh, donated, you know, 60 panels last year. They just put forward 79 more panels that go a long way in these communities. And then he also, the company sponsors 
one, two, three people going on the trip, those people come back and say what a great time they have. Then, I mean, there's 50 applicants that want to take the five spots in Wood McKenzie. So the conversation then changes to, okay, if we have that much demand, you know, in our company of a couple thousand people, uh, what other locations can we grow the partnership with? And that's the nature of how we've kind of grown. I don't know if I'm answering the question, but you can tell I'm excited about it, right? <laughs> you are answering the question. I was going to bring in BQ because one of the questions that often comes up is like, you know, th there are different ways folks can participate and they don't, they aren't always necessarily intuitive. Partly you need to, you need to procure equipment and engineer systems, both of which can be outsourced to participating sort of uh, in philanthropic philanthropic ways through other solar companies like Solar Landscape, like BQ Energy. The concept of donating leftover panels, you know, a lot of folks have a lot more than I think would be assumed. Many folks have warehouses where because you always order overage for breakage in the project development cycle, they end up with maybe enough to do a residential system, maybe enough to do a few but no real clear channel for what to do with those panels. And so they sit in a warehouse and instead there's no real like brokerage online to, to like offer them up and they just sit and sit. And now you've got, you know, panels that are maybe a year old that are, are sitting in a warehouse just to be uh, insurance. And they could be donated to an organization like Let's Share the Sun as a way to partner with, I kind of look at it as having stuff on hand that's excess inventory that you know you're never going to use it's sitting in the basement you're not going to do a garage sale so you may as well take it you know excess clothing or whatever may as well take it to the local shelter and put it to good use instead of hoarding it right the, there's a lot of this equipment sitting in the industry right now and i presume that that is part of the way that you help to fund these 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 trips that's why i asked Totally. Um, that's exactly what happened with BQ Energy. You know, they saved 20 to 30 panels. They decided, I really only need five of this model. We're not replacing panels. Got 15, 20 panels of one type from one job, 15, 20 panels from another. Next thing you know, you have, you know, a couple of skids that are in route to Puerto Rico or Dominican Republic or Honduras. And yeah, I think we always look for the easy yes, Nico. It's not like try to stretch you beyond what your means is. What is your reality? Uh, you know, 15, 20 minute conversation. I can usually get to that and say, okay, let's start with the easy yes. And I guarantee you, once that goes well, you want to expand on this relationship in ways that work in your system. I mean, Wood McKenzie and Let's Share the Sun are talking about, you know, sponsoring executive retreats. Oh, wow. Most solar companies are doing executive retreats. Uh, why not add on two days where you put solar on a roof, you know, 20 miles from the hotel where you're doing that executive retreat and feel, feel even better about the next five years of your company's growth. It's a lot more tangible than offsetting the, the carbon footprint of your flight miles. Totally. And, you know, I mean, I'm really proud of a group of high school students that formed the Outer On Deck Solar Alliance up in Queensbury area. Mm. Um, and they basically are going to, uh, they've raised thirty $32,000 as of today for solar on an elder care facility in Puerto Rico that they're going to install with the Puerto Rican solar installer in, 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 in April. So we've gotten really good at combining solar professionals with young people mm. thinking about what they want to do in life. Not all of them will become in, in to our industry, but we try to plant the seed of, you know, gain talents and give back in life and you're going to be a lot happier in life. And if some of you want to do solar, we'd like to get the best of you, you know, like uh, Jake Yurick, who we've talked about. Absolutely. Is, and so, and so uh, the, the trips are a huge amount of fun 
and you, you really do gain lifelong uh, friendships by, by going on the trip. So John has recruited another company, Our Generation. I just shout out. They, they're interested in supporting the O&M needs because we don't, Very none cool. of us want to do installs that aren't functioning five years from now. And so they've made a financial commitment towards the O&M. They'll be on the trip in March seeing how we're doing O&M on the 10 installs that we did last year. And and that kind of thing is, you know, what's the easy yes? That was their easy yes. They were seasoned solar professionals. And they said, well, we want to contribute on the O&M. So that's their part of our program and partnership with us is to do the o- to support on the O&M side. There's one more thing I wanted to bring up that you and I discussed a, a little while ago on a phone call. And that is the, the idea of what might be referred to as kind of second half careers. But a lot of folks have expressed interest as recent retirees. Can you talk a bit about that? Oh, my God. This is a great part of Let's Share the Sun's growth. I have to give a shout out to Ann Reynolds, who's the executive director of ACE New York. Uh, when I met Ann uh, for the first time, she says, you guys are the people I've heard about going to Haiti. I want to go there with my 15-year-old son. So Tim McCory, her son went in 2018 to Haiti and he just finished a gap year in Puerto Rico where he led the installation of those 10 homes before he's a freshman this year at Boston University. So it's Tim and his network that got the Adirondack Solar Alliance group going, uh, give them all the credit in the world. At the same time, Anne, you know, had a great guy in charge of offshore wind, Joe Martens, who was the commissioner of the DEC in New York previous to that job. And Joe did great work on the wind, felt it was time to kind of move on with his wife to retirement stage. And by introducing him, his Rolodex is incredible. He's opened up all these doors. He knows everybody in the energy sector. And at the same time, Anne introduces us to Janet Joseph, who, you know, has a career uh, at NYSERDA for uh, supporting all of the things that uh, our renewable energy sectors have been about in New York State, you know, with an equally substantial Rolodex and a lot of energy left uh, to do, you know, trips with us and to line up grant opportunities. So there is this whole stage where the people that have all this uh, life experience, career experience and relationships that can, you know, help other people in different parts of the world. So that's a really nice growth part of Let's Share the Sun, open invitations to folks that are in that stage to say, hey, I'd love to go on one of these trips. And once you go on a trip, you just are trying to figure out how you could allocate more time. So Nico, I hope you can come on one, you know, when your schedule might permit it to happen. And that'd be fantastic. I'll, we'll talk a little bit more about how to make that happen. And maybe there's some folks in the Suncast community that would want to come along. So we make that, uh, you know, we'll definitely make that offer. Well, Bill, I know a lot of folks are interested in hearing the ways that you have uh, incorporated the learning from the many folks that you've circled encircled yourself with, the, the cloud of mentors and advisors. So I like to ask, what are some of the key lessons or takeaways from those important key contributors to your journey that you now pass along to often students at Notre Dame or others who come to you asking for your mentorship? You know, I've grown in my appreciation of putting aside my own shyness on one side to ask people for mentorship. The EO forum that I'm a part of has just been so great. We just did a five-year goal-setting retreat. And I think that bottom line lesson there is the probability of achieving goals 
increases dramatically if you write them down and even more dramatically if you identify the mentors that will help you achieve those goals. So I just finished my five-year plan and it's so ambitious and I'm so excited about it. But the most exciting part is I've identified people that I'm going to ask, can I have 15 minutes of your time every one or two months to talk on this topic? And most of us don't do that for whether it's the shyness issue for my personality or some other issue that you don't think it's important. But the earlier in life that you say, hey, mentors can help me have a more fulfilling life and achieve more goals and be happier. I think those are the measures of living a fulfilled experience that's rich in terms of quality of relationships. So no one said no to my invitation or request to consider And most people feel kind of happy when you ask them that. So don't be shy. And I've probably been shy in earlier stages of my life, but now I'm really proactive in saying, you know what, this is a goal I have. And I'm wondering if you could help me achieve that goal or give me some insights from your own experience. Most people will say yes if you ask them. I believe that a key to leadership is being able to make the tough decisions when they present themselves, often sooner or faster than you want. Can you give an example of a tough decision that you've had to make that pushed you out of your comfort zone? You know, I think the the toughest ones go back to the earliest days where I would say the subset of our industry that some would typify as snake oil salesmen was higher than it is now. So we've matured as an industry. But when your antenna goes up that somebody is not an ethical person or not are going to cut corners or going to try to BS a customer to their detriment, It's important to have the guts to say, hey, this isn't how I'm going to build our company and our relationships. And I think it's become a little bit less common, uh, but, you know, uh, as the industry's matured, but I would, I would, I would just point to that in general. I I think of stories, I'd rather not get into all the specifics, but those happen uh, at a fairly decent frequency in 2009, 2010, you know, when you have $650 SREX in New Jersey, everybody and their grandmother had a, a magnet on their pickup truck that they were a solar company and not all Ain't of them the really knew what they were talking about. And so I think having the kind of quality criteria uh, was very important at, at those early stages. And it, it continues to be important to keep the quality bar, bar at the highest because it's a fast moving market now. And, and if you move slow, you might lose a job, but you don't want to move so fast and cut corners on quality. That's never going to be good for our industry or for a company's well-being. John, I'm curious, what do you nerd out about when you're not thinking about improving the energy systems for farmers and in, in the nation? I'm an avid reader. I think one of the things I've loved about being a part of entrepreneurs organization, I recommend it to any business owner in our industry. Um, you know, to sit around the table with seven other business owners that aren't competitors in different sectors, you learn a lot more than just about energy. So one of ours is an avid goal setter. So one of my goals is 52 books a year. You know, that's a pretty wow. high average. And they're not all in the energy sector. Um, healthy subset of them are. Um, and I love, uh, I love, that's where I relax is, is to read and I don't read just in our energy sector. So, you know, somebody listening to this right now is shaking their head going, how do I find time to read a book a week? Other people have other hobbies, but do what, you know, I, 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 I like to exercise and jog. And so that also helps keep me healthy and energized. I don't know how to play music and in, musical instruments. I'd like to do that and learn that, but 
you know, when I sit at the end of a day and I read a book at, at night, I, it just kind of gets me in a relaxed mode to be able to fall asleep. And, and then that's the weekend time. I, I, t- I try to turn off the devices on the weekend. I don't know. We need to shut down. And, and, mm-hmm. and when the devices are off, it's easy to, for me to pick up a book and, and, you know, feed another part of my brain, I guess. Yeah. I love that. No devices, only books. And sounds like you do listen to audiobooks as well. Well, I, I drive an average of about 40,000 miles a year to visit customers. So books on tape have been a great use of a subset of that time, you know, so this count towards the 52, a book on tape counts. hundred <laughs> percent because it's still a book and you're still consuming it. The question that I have that is not meant to be an unfair one. It's actually not even meant to be a biased one. I struggle with over a thousand episodes I've queued up in my own podcast because I'm a podcast junkie. Uh, so my podcast feed is like more than a thousand episodes I'll never get through. And also probably good two to three dozen books that I want to get through. How do you decide book versus podcast? Well, um, my kids will all say dad's the boringest gift giver as we approach the holiday season because they know they're just going to get a book. And I buy two copies of the book. One is a gift to the person and one for myself to read with them. So if I buy a book for somebody, it's usually reading it. If I, you know, hear about it in an EO meeting, I usually put it on my phone for the drive. And I have, I have that way to, you know, to, to get the content. So that's probably how I decide. What are some of the, what are some of the most recent books that you've gifted or books that you routinely continually gift? I am going to give all of our board members the book by Matt Damon and his partner with water.org that's out right now. The Worth of Water. It's a great book. Tonight, uh, I have a, a liturgy group that I'm in, involved with that we've been together since Nancy and I got married in 1990 in the Bronx. I'm presenting on this book by Maria Reza, who's the Nobel Peace Laureate from the Philippines, How to Stand Up to a Dictator, The Fight for Our Future. Highly recommend her story, that book, in this time of... Uh, kind of building and defending democracy in our own country. I think those are the two most recent books. We lost, uh, we lost uh, my, my, my wife's sister, 62-year-old doctor, to geoblastoma. So I have four books on cancer, trying to educate myself on, you know, how we're making advances there. So I try to vary it up on topics so that, you know, I can talk about more than just solar as my daughter prodded me to early. (laughs) What was the book that you just mentioned that you're teaching about tonight at Literature Class? It's called How to Stand Up to a Dictator, The Fight for Our Future. Uh, Maria Reza, she's a she was with CNN for a long time in Asia, and she's a Filipina that's actually uh, under arrest by the Duterte, now Marcos government. Uh, she won the Peace Prize with another person last year, and she's really kind of taken on some of the algorithms that have led to so much polarization, you know, in, uh, in being created by our social media. So uh, definitely worth a read. I've listed both of those and I'll, of course, leave a little rabbit trail for the, those who maybe didn't capture the other three books that were mentioned in order they were mentioned was uh, The Oil Factor by Stephen Lieb, The uh, Solar Revolution by Travis Bradford, and also Who Not How by Dan Sullivan. Can I add one more? I just sure. Catherine Blunt is a Wall Street Journal writer and her book, California Burning, The Fall of Pacific oh, yes. Gas and Electric and What It Means for America's Power Grid is just... From my perspective, must reading for our industry as we go into mm-hmm. this time of accelerated transformation. I love that book. And uh, it has been recommended a couple of times by others. Uh, it's, you're in good company there. 
absolutely will add California Burning to the list. Well, Bill Jordan has been truly fantastic to engage on this uh, in this wide ranging conversation with you about bringing energy security to our food supply in very tangible ways, how to transition from one industry to the other and how to build a company, how to build a company that gives back and that has integrity and sustainable scale ability at its core. For those who are listening and want to connect with you, maybe they are looking for ways to engage with, let's share the sun or go on a trip. How can you be found? What are the websites that are relevant? How do you, do you interact on social media in any way? Leave them some goodies here. Well, yes, I'm a networker by personality type, so I invite all personal interactions. Uh, so I will answer my phone at 646-648-3772. My email is bill at jordanenergy.org. The donation streams are very easy to access. The link with uh, Wood McKenzie is on our website at uh, letsharethesun.org. And Jordan Energy's activities are jordanenergy.org as well. I do look at social media, LinkedIn, I love. I think that's usually what I do when I meet a new person in the industry, you know, is see what their background is there and kind of what they're into. So I like that professional networking function of LinkedIn. And I just can't thank you enough for the function of your helping our industry grow with your sharing of people's stories. And I hope some people find what we've shared today interesting. And there's an open line of communication if people want to get involved. Like I said, we look for the easy yes, and we look for it to be in a time efficient manner. So, Well, you know, we aim to attract, inspire, and equip the leaders of the solar energy and clean energy revolution. And, you know, you're a, a worthy thought leader and contributor and mentor vis-a-vis this conversation to thousands of folks who will listen to this episode. We're all grateful for that opportunity. And I'm grateful for the chance to have gotten a chance to get this time with you. Uh, I'd like to end today with what we often refer to as the bold prediction. Bill Jordan, what do you believe is the linchpin problem that we've got to solve, that we will in fact solve to decarbonize the grid by 2050 or perhaps sooner? What's in your crystal ball? I think that uh, we can go faster and it can happen sooner. And I think it's really linking the electrification of the transportation sector to a renewable generation where I think the largest subset will be solar. My crystal ball is that most things that move will be powered by the sun and that in the process, we will make the world a better place. So helping make that happen by giving back from the outset is while hard and strainful at times, very, very fulfilling. And so I encourage if Let's Share the Sun can be the avenue for which uh, that facilitates you giving back, we're happy to play that role and enjoy the ride together. Bill Jordan is the founder and general manager for Jordan Energy and Food Enterprises and co-founder and president of Let's Share the Sun Foundation. Bill, it has been genuinely a pleasure to have you on the show and I look forward to not only meeting you again someday uh, in the not too distant future, but hopefully seeing you on a trip down to Puerto Rico in March. That sounds great. Very welcome and very grateful for the time together here. Well, that's a wrap on today's practical insights into this Solar Warriors journey. What did you learn? If you're following along on LinkedIn, and I hope you are, I'd love to hear your thoughts in the comments on our post over there. And I'd be honored if you'd Go so far as to repost this episode with your takeaways and thoughts as well. Make sure you tag me if you do that so I'll get a notification, please. Thanks to Bill Jordan. Sir, 
You are truly legend and I have learned so much from you. Thanks for taking time to mentor me, I'd say us here today. If you're working in project development, I'm sure you have more tools now in your toolkit to think about how you can make an impact just like Jordan Energy, Bill and his family. Go check out what Bill and his team are doing with Let's Share the Sun and apply to go on that trip to Puerto Rico or other trips as well. Help them provide clean energy folks in developing countries. That's www.letssharethesun.org. Of course, we link to it in the show notes. I want you to tune in next week as we'll meet Alex Stewart of Standard Carbon. For those of you who are in our Resource Labs community, you may have already caught Alex's conversation in one of our office hours all about carbon accounting. You see, Alex has created the QuickBooks of Carbon, and he's an expert on why the forthcoming ESG regulations matter to every company, not just those who are publicly traded, and why it's extremely difficult to actually measure progress or allocate value. If you're eager to keep learning, well, you, my fellow Philomath, can find all the resources we've mentioned along with highlights from this and every other discussion on the blog over at mysuncast.com. That's where you'll find the social media links and book recommendations as well. Just click on the episodes tab. And I know I just mentioned our community. You can find out more as well at mysuncast.com forward slash community. Join us and more than 250 other clean energy and solar entrepreneurs, founders, and those seeking to join in our journey. Be part of our community, learn along with us, join us in our weekly office hours and town squares and all the other ways that we are learning and helping one another grow in community. Thanks once again, finally, to our sponsors who help make this content free to you each and every week. You can learn more about them at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. It's also where you can learn how to partner with us to reach thousands of solar warriors and clean tech champions twice a week, just like they do. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. <laughs>